following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. I see that you were afraid to skip this week. Uh, so that's good. Good to see you. Um, <clears throat> so this week, we're gonna, this is going to be part two on what is the church, um, with a little different take on it, not just what it is, but what is it about, what do we do. Uh, so the Bible uses a few different words. Um, I'm sorry, uses the word a few different ways, the word church a few different ways. Last week, we discussed the primary meaning. The church is the people of God. It's a family that he assembles and brings together. Another use of the word is to refer to a specific group of Jesus followers who gather in this building or in a region. Uh, and, and this is what we see in the beginning of a whole lot of the New Testament books. Um, most of the books that were written as letters were written as letters to some to individuals, but the, the ones who were not to individuals were almost always to a church. Um, and I've got uh, a number of examples, but I'm just going to read a few of them. Uh, the beginning of Romans says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, <clears throat> right away, I've got to explain something because I realize saints might be a weird word or a new word or a new meaning for a lot of people. Um, it's not the football team in uh, New Orleans. Um, it is the, and, and it's not, a, a lot of people will think, well, these are the people who, you know, have the fancy robes and sometimes they're on a card or stained glass or whatever and they're the ones that you pray to because they're the super Christians or the, the old dead people, whatever. And that's one way that saint is used in many traditions. But when you see the word in the Bible, it's like this here, called to be saints, that's not talking about the fancy pants Christians. They're, they're really, you know, the super duper ones. This means a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. So this, when it says, when, when Paul writes to the Romans, to those who are called to be saints, that's just a long way of saying the church, the church at Rome. In 1 Corinthians, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, the church. Those who are called to be saints, again, same language, the church, together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the definition of the church. Uh, Galatians was not written to a, a particular church, but a number of churches in a region. So at the beginning, it begins with, to the churches of Galatia. Philippians says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Uh, Thessalonians, both letters, to the church of the Thessalonians. First Peter says, to those who are elect exiles of the, the dispersion. So without getting into all the, the different ideas of what elect can mean or how people un, unpack it, elect means the church. These are the people who are true believers in Christ. And similarly, Jude says, to those who are called. We're the called out ones. That's what ecclesia means, which is translated church. These are all ways of saying the church. Uh, and in fact, the first three chapters of Revelation contain letters to various churches in the whole region of, of West Asia. So in the context in many of these shows that not everyone that's gathered in these places were actually Christians. So while the primary meaning of the word church is the people who are called out by God, in actual practice, these gatherings were primarily believers, but with some unbelievers as well. So there's a couple categories or, or terms that have been used in church history that I think are helpful um, just to understand how this all works. Um, as far back as Augustine, a guy who lived around 300 AD, um, there was a term, there's been a term called invisible church. 
uh, that's been used by theologians. Um, this sounds like something that you might hear in the X-Men franchise. That's not what he meant. Um, Augustine didn't have a school for gifted youngsters. That was different. Uh, the idea of the invisible church is that you and I right now can't see all believers. Like there's people behind you, Paul. You could turn and see some other ones. Um, there's other churches in town. There's other churches in the state, country, world. We can't see them all. Not only that, there are some that are dead. Um, there, a lot has happened in 2,000 years. There are still believers who are yet to be born. Uh, so anything in the past, present, and future, anyone who is or will be or was adopted into God's family, true believers in Christ, that is the, inv the invisible church. Um, on top of this, when we look at the church today, a church body like this, or any church gathering, we don't always know with certainty who, who actual believers are. Not that we're supposed to look around and you know, put tags on them, but like we've talked about, just being in church doesn't mean that you are a believer. It's the, it's the called out ones. It's, a, it's the gathering for believers, of believers, but that doesn't mean anyone there necessarily is. That's, that's spoken of other ways. Um, so the invisible church is the collection of all true believers throughout all of time, who will spend eternity with God, whether we see them or know about them or not. That's the invisible church. So, if you do a little thinking, you can figure out that means the visible church is the ones we can see. So if you look around, you will see the visible church of the living God right now. Uh, not, this is not just the ones who are called to gather, but the ones who actually do gather, the ones who are there. Uh, and this is believers and unbelievers. Some inside those gatherings um, aren't believers and don't even claim to be. Some claim to be, but are not. Um, I said at the beginning that the church is the people called by God, and that is the intended meaning in Scripture. But the Bible also uses the word church to refer to the gathered body, who are sometimes a mixed bag. So this idea of visible church is who we can see. Um, when we see uh, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, he mentions a man in the church, and he wants them to kick him out. Um, he does not belong among you. When John writes to the seven churches, it's evident that there are some people who are faithful and others who are not. Uh, and despite popular opinion, it's interesting to note that when you read about the Antichrist, that actual word in Scripture, it is always referring to someone who rises up within the church. It is never someone who rises up in government, which is usually the kind of the idea that we have. Um, so I mentioned this for two reasons. One, understanding terms is helpful. It gives you some mental categories for understanding these different uses for the word church. But also as a warning that don't just be part of the visible church. Be found faithful. We're called to run the race, not to be hearers only, but doers also. We press on, continue to work out our salvation. Um, and I've had questions before. After a message like this, people will say, I'm, am I saved? I'm concerned about this. If you're concerned, you probably shouldn't be. That's kind of a sign of the Holy Spirit. If you aren't concerned, I would suggest you should be. Um, but that's another topic. While we're on the topic of warnings, um, I want to say something more about what I introduced last week. So last week I paraphrased forsaking the assembly as skipping church, but the Bible actually uses much stronger language. So not to beat a dead horse here, but I think this is worth looking at a little bit as I was looking into this last week. 
So this is Hebrews 10.25, part of a, a longer passage where this phrase says, do not forsake the assembly as is the habit of some. Um, so this word of assembling or gathering, depending on how, what version you're reading, it's talking about coming together. And the word that's used is based on the same word. It actually looks like the word synagogue, if you look in Greek, um, that, which was the Jewish worship gathering. So he's basically saying, don't stop synagoguing. Keep gathering together to worship God. And it's a verb, not a noun. Um, it's not talking about a place that people go that is named the church. It's the action of gathering with the church, at the church, to be the church. It's a thing that we do. But I think the word I've misunderstood the most is the word forsake. To me, it's, it sounds like the word forget, like yeah, this is a good idea, you know, this be, it'll go really well for you if you don't do this. It's not, it, it seemed to me like, a, don't forsake brushing your teeth, it's a good thing, uh, but that's not the meaning of that word at all. And I'll show you that we already know that because that word is other places in the Bible. Here's a few examples. Um, you probably already know the phrase that God will not leave you or forsake you. Same idea here, same word, that he will not leave you or forsake you. It's not just talking about, it's, it's a good idea for God to not leave you. It's saying, no, he, he won't. It's just a fact. When God spoke about being abandoned to the realm of the dead, he used the same word. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, Mark says all the disciples fled and they abandoned him in the garden. That's the same word as forsake, of forsaking the assembly. When Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus quotes David and says, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me here all alone? Same word. Uh, when Paul said we would be persecuted but not abandoned, abandoned is the same thing. Paul also used this word when he described Damas and other, uh, others who were, get, were with him in his ministry, either traveling with him or uh, preaching to churches with him. Um, but they left him behind, and he was pretty ticked. He had some pretty strong words to say to them. Um, and he, he names some of them by name and says, these people left me when I needed them. They left me stranded and betrayed. It's the same word that he used when he said, or, well, whoever wrote Hebrews used when they said, don't forsake. So it's not just giving us good advice or encouragement. It's not a life lesson. Uh, it's something almost like a rebuke. It's a warning. Don't abandon the gathering. Don't desert the worship service. Don't leave. Don't leave us in the lurch. Um, and I don't reiterate this to condemn you, but I, I, it is worth warning. I, I wanted to uh, bring it up just because I hadn't noted that last week, but I think it is worth mentioning because when we say, uh, I don't go to church, it's the word, it's what the Bible calls abandonment or desertion, which is a different thing that's worth some thinking. So we are now in the last days. We actually have been for 2,000 years. Soon the end will come. God will destroy the world and he'll remake it. He has told us that this would happen. But it's not the first time he said this. It's not quite the same thing, but something similar has already happened before. See if this sounds familiar. The earth grew wicked. No one followed God. For a long time he warned them that the end was coming. He made a promise to the righteous remnant and he provided a vessel for them to protect them. He's done it this time as well. This ending will be much more catastrophic than the flood. This end will be final. The results will be devastating and eternal. The stakes are much higher, so the warnings have gone on much longer. 
The church can be compared to something like the ark. Those who enter and remain within will be protected from the ultimate devastation God will bring. Like the Israelites who are delivered from the watery death across the Red Sea and then guided into their rest across the Jordan, the true church will pass safely through this life because of God's miraculous intervention. Not only is it a miracle that God saves us from destruction, but it's a bit of a miracle that God saves us from each other. Uh, this came up in Message Plus last week. Since day one, you look at the church and the, the, the admonitions, warnings, that what's told to the, those who gathered, um, you see that it has always been a church of very different people, um, especially back then. I mean, sure, you might have Democrats and Republicans or uh, country folk and city folk, but that's, we don't get a, a whole lot beyond that now like they did in the first church. You might have people who, you know, just a few years ago, they were on different sides of the battle lines for a war, uh, and they're now sitting in pews together trying to get along. Uh, since the beginning, it's been a group of men and women, which was a bigger cultural divide then than it is today. Gentiles and Jews, slaves and masters. I mean, these are people who were owned by other people and did their bidding and came to church and they were equals while they were there. In the body of Christ, they're equals. They may have a different relationship for work and life, but they're, they're equals in the eyes of God. So you name the division, it was likely represented in the early church and today as well. Um, you might have been in a pew with a sworn national enemy, but that's over. You might be a slave sitting next to your master, but the gathering your equals, and whatever national, cultural, political distinctions that might have existed uh, between men and women or any other way of categorizing people were irrelevant in the gathering, and they are today. But how could this possibly work? I mean, when they're calling all of these people together, this sounds like a terrible idea. I mean, this sounds like this could go wrong a lot of different ways. But in Christ, things are different. Our primary bond isn't to each other. If we're trying to just all be buddies, then that might go for a while, but that, that's not what's going on. Our primary allegiance is to Christ. Um, and in finding our primary allegiance there, these competing commitments fade into the background. And because we have the same commitment, that in, in turn makes a commitment to each other because we are both, uh, the Bible even talks in terms of marriage, that we're, we're bound to the same person. Um, so things that would fail miserably anywhere else work in the church because of our unity in Christ. It's 2,000 years. How many organizations of widely different people have, have lasted that long? Um, this unity that we have in Christ also brings safety, but we're often at risk of breaking this. So one of the goals in the Reformation was to translate the Bible into the common language. Uh, if you were German or English or, or whatever, you should have a Bible you could read in German or English or whatever you could read. At the time, that did not exist. I mean, there were some pre-reformers that had pages, literally, they would have a page in their language, and somebody would have the first half of John 4, and that's what they would preach on and go around and evangelize for a year, and that's all they knew. Uh, that is not the world we live in. Um, but at the time, Bibles were in Latin, and they, were, they stayed on a podium in the church, in each local church, and only the, the priest, in theory, could read it because they were supposed to be schooled in Latin. In reality, by that time, few were. Most of them were essentially um, repeating homilies that they had memorized in Latin, but they didn't even know what they're saying. They're just saying sounds. And they certainly couldn't read the text. Some could, but by the Reformation, not many could. 
So, in effect, the Bible was unavailable to the common man. Um, at this time, uh, what people would know of Scripture is just what they would be told by the priest, and it might be bits and pieces here and there, and they had no way to check it for themselves. The Reformation happened alongside the introduction of the printing press. In God's providence, the desire to get the Bible out into the hands of everyone in their own language happened at the same time that it was actually possible to do so. Now, there was pushback at the time. The Catholic critique was, well, we can't trust common people. They're not smart enough to understand this. They're going to screw it up. Um, this is not true, but there is some concern in there that's valid. One example is that the Reformers spoke of something called the priesthood of all believers. The idea was that the Bible has language about us each being priests. But their idea with this phrase was to refer to the idea any Christian can speak to an unbeliever and lead them to Christ. They can tell them the salvation message, the gospel, and explain to them how they're dead in their sins and their only hope for salvation is Christ. Anyone could do that, not just some church official uh, that had been appointed by Rome. Uh, and not only that, but the average person could read the Bible for themselves and for the most part understand it. Because most of Scripture is understandable. There's plenty of stuff that people disagree about or are confused about, but most of it is quite easily understood. Um, so, excuse me. Um, the, uh, the, so back then, many, and today as well, misunderstood this concept, priesthood of all believers, and they, they heard it as the priesthood of each believer. And this happens all the time today. The reformers didn't suggest that each person could come to a complete and perfect, un, unblemished um, understanding of Scripture on their own. That's not what they meant. What they're saying is most of Scripture is clear, but the safety comes in community. And that's part of the function of the church. The properly functioning church was to be a place where these ideas could be brought and discussed by common believers with, with clergy as well. But people who could read the scripture themselves could look at the text themselves and discuss this, bring it to community. Today you call it a Bible study or meeting over coffee or, or before or after a service. But you could talk with a average normal folks in the church and this would be a guard. Um, a guard. It would be a way that guard, doctrine would be guarded. This is also part of the reason for the church offices of elder, pastor, teacher, these kind of things. It's to help protect the gospel. And that's a, that's a phrase that uh, Paul and others use in their letters often, protect the doctrine. Um, unfortunately, this misunderstanding of 500 years ago still flourishes today. So all I'll say on this is if you're contemplating some new revolutionary idea that somebody has found out that they can read the Bible in a way that people have missed for 2,000 years, I have an opinion about that, but uh, if you're you know, looking at this idea or, well, what, does this guy have a good take on this? Is this a good book? Is this, should I watch this? Should I do this? Ask around. That's part of what the body is for is there's safety in the church. Uh, and not just the visible members of the church. We're talking about invisible members as well. There are lots of dead people who are faithful members of the church that have written uh, a lot on this, and we ignore um, the resources of their writings and our uh, fellow church members to our peril because we are here for one another. Um, the safety in our church can also be threatened by our other commitments. 
we're each individuals with our own interests and passions. Uh, some are appropriate, some are not. Some are combat- compatible with Christianity, and some are not. Uh, when writing to the church at Corinth, Paul pointed out the clear contrast in their lives before following Christ and life after. So in one passage, he gives this laundry list of sins. Uh, He talks about drunkenness, stealing, bullying, homosexuality, adultery, idolatry, all sorts of things that were markers of unrighteousness. And after that, he has an interesting phrase. He says all this and then says, such were some of you, were. You used to be like that, but no more, because Christ gave you a new identity. All of us had identities before Christ, but now Jesus is our identity. Not that everything else goes away, but, and we don't, certainly don't all become identical, but we have a shared identity. And that identity is not political, it's not racial, it's not our sexual orientation. Our identity is found in Christ, and nothing may be allowed to compete with it. Some of these identities are actually logical opposites of Christianity and cannot be held together without breaking one or the other. They just don't go together at all. Some of them, however, are compatible. But even so, when they are, it's still worth looking at our priorities. Am I a Christian first or something else first? Which one do I put first? Which do I say first? Which do I, which do I put emphasis on? That's one question to ask of yourself, but then think, well, however you answer that, does my bank account show that same story? My Facebook wall? my calendar, my schedule, my internet history, uh, the words that I say. So I I wrote some questions that I think are worth thinking about over the coming week. Are my allegiances, alliances, commitments, and preferences compatible with Christ's teaching? If not, they don't belong. Do I identify as a Christian first or something else? And if I were to ask someone else around me what my commitments were? What's my primary identity? What would they say? What would they see? Again, this, this kind of stuff isn't to make you feel guilty. Unless you are guilty, then feel guilty. Uh, I'm okay with that. Um, but, but even so, this isn't intended to condemn anyone. That's not my job. But the Holy Spirit does use messages like this to bring conviction. And that's just a fancy Christian word for when you feel this uncomfortable pressure on a tender spot that just, you can't make it go away. In the church, it's our job to sharpen one another, speak truth to one another, correct one another, sometimes even separate from one one another, depending on what the issue is. Um, Sometimes I've heard people, this is more popular in some communities than others, I've heard people say to their kids, we don't do that. When they, when they see their kids misbehaving. Um, it, it's a shorthand for saying, I know other people might do that, but that's not us. Just because Joey does that doesn't mean we can. Our family doesn't act that way. Um, your actions reflect badly on our family. The church is a family too. We have an understood code of conduct, a family identity, you could call it. What we do reflects on the family. Uh, several weeks or a, a month maybe ago, Anthony had a message when he, he used a phrase that had stuck out to him that week, that I'm the, pers- I'm the kind of person that does that kind of thing. He says, you know, you, you guys are the kind of per- people that do that, the sorts of things that you do. The church is a type of people who do certain things and don't do other things. So it's worth asking, are you a church sort of person? And there's a name for that sort of person. It's a disciple of Christ. It's a, a churchgoer, a believer, uh, 
in, in Jesus. And together we are the body. Our individual gifts are for the body. All the spiritual gifts that are mentioned um, in Scripture are meant to serve the church. The fruit of the Spirit is not limited to expression within the church, but it ought to be evident there. So in Paul's writing to the churches in Galatia, he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. He doesn't say fruits, although he lists a bunch of things. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love. In other words, the fellowship, or those in fellowship of the Spirit can be identified because of their love. But what does that mean? What is it to love the body? Fortunately, he explains. He says it's to be patient with fellow members. I like the word long-suffering because it paints a picture. Uh, patience sounds easy. Long-suffering does not. Uh, it's to be kind to others in the church. It's to be humble, to share in suffering. It's a life of joy and peace and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There are various passages that paint this picture of what life is. And it's a life that's lived as a reflection of our maker. We are showing whose we are. We are his. We're the gathered ones. We're gathered to hear from God and gathered for a mission. Um, but we're, we're not, we have a lot of fun in the church and, and lots, of, lots of things happen. We, we learn, we play, we do lots of things. But we're not a community that is just for fun. Not that it's, you know, drudgery, but that's not the primary goal. It's not the rotary or, or some other social group, but it is rewarding because God made this people and there's no other group like it. In scripture, we see um, that we are called the people of God the disciples of Christ and the fellowship of the Spirit, which is an interesting thing to see. Um, I talked a month or so ago about the, the, about the doctrine of God, the, the idea that Trinity is three persons but one essence. Well, the church is described in Trinitarian terms, and they're all complementary because God is one essence. These are all talking about the same God, but three persons. So these three people, three persons, doesn't mean we have three commitments. It's all the same thing. God called his people to come listen to him. Jesus called his disciples, said, come and follow me. Uh, then later he said, make disciples and teach, teach others. The fellowship of the Spirit has been called to one another. Uh, one way I read that I really like is that the church has a threefold ministry. Um, and the way that it's put is this. As a body, we are called to minister to God in worship, to the saints in nurture, and to the world in witness. Um, the church has always worshipped God together in song, not just because of tradition, but because worship has always been happening since before the beginning. I think of this as part of Jesus' prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. What's in heaven? Same thing happens on earth. For a short time each week, we on earth can join in with the heavenly chorus that's been glorifying God for eternity. And we've got a few minutes to join that same thing. This is part of the church's call. It's worth showing up on time to participate in that. Um, I already spoke a bit about nurturing the saints. Um, the, the New Testament is loaded with one another verses. You see this one another phrase. The phrase isn't always there, but the phrase is there a lot. When you see one another, it means brothers and sisters in Christ. Not that you just treat them well and treat others poorly, but the one is specifically referring to our brothers and sisters in the church body. And the sorts of things, this is, it's a long list, but just for a short list, we accept one another, we tolerate one another, we forgive one another, we confess sins to one another, we love and serve one another, we honor one another, 
We bear one another's burdens. We speak truth, sometimes an uncomfortable truth or even a stern rebuke, all out of love for one another. We encourage one another, pray for one another, and on and on and on. And honestly, this is just exposition. It's just going on and on about what it is to truly love. What is love? It's all this one anothering. This is, this is what it is to love the body. So two things could be viewed as our witness to the world. What we show them and what we tell them. And I think we've lost a lot of ground on that first one in recent years. What does the world see when they look at us? I don't mean a show that we put on or what we're trying to show them, but I mean the way we actually are when we don't know that people are looking. Does it look like we love one another? Do we look like we have turned from sin? Or do we still cling to some of that for such were some of you stuff? Uh, Do we show that God is our highest priority or do we have other allegiances that are more evident? Of whom are we more critical, fellow Christians or the world? The Bible reserves judgment by, by humans for those within the church. We're not instructed to judge the world. Are we consistent? Do they see that we love what God loves and hate what God hates? Do we judge all with the same scale? Do we excuse sin? What we do reflects on the church and what and who we stand for. So we need to be aware of what we show the world. Um, I don't think uh, I need to say too much about what we are supposed to tell the world, or then I wonder, do I? It's popular to say, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words, which is a quote that was never said, but it makes a lot of memes. Uh, I get the point. The idea is that people want to say, look at what people are doing. Are they, we ought to be consistent. Uh, our actions count, and that's true. We ought to live consistent lives and use words. I was all ready to say that we all know the Great Commission, and then I thought, oh, shoot, do we? Um, can I remember it accurately? I think the general sense is that we are supposed to make more Christians. I've heard it phrased as duck, duck, damn. You go over and, you know, make somebody a Christian and walk away. And I guess that's part of the package, but it's not that easy. Uh, it makes it sound like we should hop on a plane to a foreign land where people don't know anything because they're foreigners and, and do our best to lead them to Jesus. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We should lead people to Jesus. But that's not quite what he said to do. To strip it down, he said to make disciples, which means followers. He says baptize them. So that means he's talking about the sort of follower that repents and chooses to follow Christ. But the kicker is in the end. He says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's a lot of things, everything. Uh, that's more than a church mission, mission trip. They're good. These are good things, but this is talking about something more. It's more than a meeting at Starbucks. Teaching everything takes time. Uh, there's teaching at the beginning of the process to make sure people know what they're signing up for. You want to baptize them. Why do, who's baptized? What am I signing up for? Um, and there's a whole bunch of teaching afterwards, too. What does it mean now that I'm a believer? How do I do this? What do I do there? What, how, how does this all work? What does this mean? Um, some people call it discipling, which just means teaching people who are now disciples. Uh, it just popped in my head that uh, Philip, he goes and speaks to the eunuch who he sees as reading the Bible. And he says, what do you think of that? Do you get what you're reading? He says, how could I understand if someone didn't explain it to me? He's discipling him. Um, stand by. You know where there is a fantastic opportunity to make both believers and unbelievers and turn them into disciples? 
make them disciples, like Jesus said, in this building Wednesday night. Um, it fills my heart to come here and watch Carl and his team teach kids what it means to follow Jesus and to hear them repeat these things back. There's nothing quite like it. To watch them play games together and love each other, to see them memorize God's word. Uh, there are few things that give me as much joy as when I come here and hear your kids practicing and reciting back to me verses. They'll try and get three, four a night that they read Decent passages, decent chunks of passages that I don't have committed to memory, and they're racking them up. And I get to hear them do this, these little kids that are making me feel terrible. Uh, <clears throat> a close second to that is looking around the room at the other adults that come there just to come for 20 minutes to hear people being, learning the word. It's the Great Commission, that's the church. I've been inside the youth room, too, uh, during youth group on Wednesday nights. In that room, on Wednesday night, believers and unbelievers in their teens come together to bear their hearts and bear one another's burdens. They hear the Bible explained, they ask questions, and it's deep stuff. It's church. That's the Great Commission. Um, Sunday morning, you can actually impact an entire room of unbelievers without leaving the building. The nursery is filled with fallen humanity. Three of them are mine, so I know. <clears throat> they are small, and you barely need a first language, let alone a second. It's, it's not mindless babysitting. You're going and participating in the Great Commission. And it's a two-for-one deal. In one act, in a very short period of time, you get to serve your fellow believers, you get to do some one-anothering, and you make disciples of their kids. What a deal. <clears throat> this mission field exists on the other side of that wall. Who would not want to do that? It fills my heart to the brim on this as well when I walk down there and see people in there ministering to kids, honestly. And of course, the Great Commission can be carried out in other places, not just in our church. I've been part of philosophy groups, debates, um, pub theology, lunches with friends, Facebook conversations, elevator rides with strangers. Uh, there are endless opportunities to talk to non-Christians about things that are important. And it's not as weird as you think. I understand there are settings where it's weird. But all of the preconceived ideas that I had when I would grow up and hear people say, you need to witness and use these weird words that no one uses anywhere else but here. But if you think of it in terms of, do you talk to people about things that are important to you? You do it all the time. But do we do it about this thing? Not a guilt trip, but I'm just telling you, it's, it's not that hard to do. The ideas that I used to have about how awkward it would be, I don't think it's ever been that awkward. It's usually pretty normal. Um, but you don't have to limit your discipling to non-believers. You should do both. There are Bible studies, small groups, Sunday school, evening classes, Message Plus, and on and on. Some of my favorite time with fellow Christians happens at breakfasts, uh, around a backyard fire, on a car ride, uh, game night at Tom and Amy's. They're all different sorts of things to do with one another. And the great news is you don't have to choose just one. You can do a few from each group. And not only is it participating in the church growth movement that Jesus started, but it's a lot of fun. But please don't just tell people. You have to do both. Show them too. Nothing you say will make up for a bad representation of Christ and his church. The people of God often have a bad reputation this day, and it's often deserved. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We're his body created for ministry. So let's do our best to worship God, 
serve the body, and witness to the world. So we've covered a lot in the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> Hopefully you've seen that the Bible's description of life in Christ follows the model of the first church. It says in Acts 2 that they devoted themselves to learning, fellowship, communion, and prayer. They provided for one another. They shared meals in their homes. They met regularly. They told others, and the church grew. You can do that. It's not complicated stuff. It's actually normal life, and it's quite enjoyable. Uh, so I don't want to end this with the assumption that we're all on the same page. Like I said, this is, the, this is the visible church. Some are part of the invisible church, but not all. If you're here and you have never repented for your sins, then the last two weeks may have been confusing. But there's great news. You don't have to stay on the outside. It's easy. You don't have to pay a membership fee or get a card. No one checks at the door. Uh, it's pretty easy. The church doesn't have any power over you, though. No church does. Uh, by the 16th century, the Catholic Church had become a world power. It wasn't a body. It was a machine. It was a force to be reckoned with. It was, it was never supposed to be an institution or a bureaucracy, but it had become all of that. The church then was a body of government organized from the top down. You needed to submit and hope for a good hearing. But the church was never meant to be an oppressor. The church was to be a light, from, light to the world, shining from the mountaintops. The church as an institution does not add us to God's family. It can't. Rather, as we talked about last week, God adopts us and he adds us to his family. And at that point, you are part of the church. The way it's explained in the Bible is this. God chose us before the foundation of the world. Because of his love for the world, he sent his son. So whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Through this, he adopts us as an act of grace that we don't deserve. And this all happens because of the faith we place in Christ. We're established on the confession of truth. This is the foundation. This is what Jesus said to Peter, that on, on this, his confession, that you are the Christ, that is what he would build the church on. Paul continued this language and replaced our confession with the, the apostles and prophets. He clarifies that the foundation is Jesus himself. So how does this all together, go together? His point is, the apostles taught what they saw and heard, which is what the prophets had foretold, and it's what we confess. And all of that refers to Jesus Christ being the promised hope for mankind. So when we acknowledge, acknowledge our faith in Christ, we are confessing our agreement with the apostles and prophets. And on this foundation, a structure is built, which Paul says is a holy temple, a dwelling, a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Peter calls it an assortment of stones built on the solid apostolic witness that Jesus is Lord. And all that is called the church. So, if you're an outsider, you don't have to be. You simply need to see your own sin and recognize that when you stand before God, you will have no excuse. And understand that your best attempts to, um, still will fall far short of what God requires of you. But also understand that Jesus lived the life you should have and he suffered the fate that we should. And see that he is the one the apostles taught that the prophets spoke of. So if you believe all this and trust God to save your life, you're already on the inside. That's all there is. You are one of the living stones. But if you're not quite there yet, that's fine too. But talk to somebody about it. And you don't have to make an appointment with some official. The church is all around you. Talk to anyone. Ask somebody, I've got a question about this. Can you help me understand this? Or I think I want to do this. Or I think I've made this decision. Can you explain this to me? Or can, can we talk about it? That's it. 
you can be part of the church. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.